taking a break from our Mark series because this year, at least, when we've brought the elders and deacons in front of you, we wanted to take a moment and talk about church leadership. So I think it was last March or April when we introduced the elders and deacons at that time, we talked about eldership, and we specifically just examined the first floor of observation in a man's life that might indicate they could be an elder, and that was his own home and family. So now, here we are in last part of September, and we're introducing our elders and deacons again, and we're going to take some time to look at the delightful duty of deacons. What is it that a deacon actually does, and why are they on board and here? What's going on with that? So we're going to take some time today to do that. In fact, what I want to do is walk you through the, the text where they're first mentioned in the New Testament, and then I'll take some questions. So perhaps if the Holy Spirit brings some questions to your mind, if you're curious about anything, just use the number on your worship bulletin, text that in, the booth will get that, and then we'll take some time for some Q&A as well today, okay? But let's dive right into the text that first mentions deacons. It's Acts chapter 6. We're going to especially notice the first seven verses. I would remind you that this message today will help you in kind of getting a, a good view of deaconship, but it will be better heard if you listen to one I preached back in 2013 on deacons. It kind of give you a 360 view, we'll call it. Uh, you'll find the, a link to that on our website. Um, it's also about deacons in a little different angle, but from this same text. Also, if you want to hear the message on elders we brought uh, earlier in the year, that'll, there'll be a link for that as well on our, on our uh, Facebook page, website. Uh, just check those places out, and that'll give you some, some additional perspective from God's Word about the issue of church leadership. And this is an issue that matters, by the way. We'll see why in a little bit. So here's the genesis of deacons, Acts 6. It's where they first came into existence. And I would use this phrase, as an official group. It's when the 12 realized we can no longer handle the logistics, the physical task. We need some help. And deacons emerge in this text for the first time. Let's read the entire set of seven verses. We'll go back and we'll notice three words that I think will help us get a handle on uh, the delightful duty of deacons. Acts 6.1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Three words I want you to remember, we're going to kind of dissect them, that I think will we'll summarize these seven verses and give you a handle on the idea of deacons. I'll give you the three words up front. They are necessity, priority, 
continuity. Will you say them with me? Necessity, priority, continuity. Maybe make a note of those, jot them in your Bible. In fact, here's what I would do if I were you. In your Bible, I would circle verse 1 and verse 3 and somehow draw a bracket or make a line that would connect to the word necessity. Those couple of verses talk about the necessity of deacons. Verses 2 and 4 talk about the priority of, of deacons and of the apostles. And verse 7 talks about the continuity. So just to kind of let you know kind of where we're headed. In your Bible, I would circle those. And we'll explain more as we proceed through this. But that gives you the idea of, okay, where are we drawing these words? I think 1 and 3 is the first couplet. talks about necessity. 2 and 4 is the second couplet. talks about priority. Verse 7, the idea of continuity. Let me explain what I mean. In verse 1, you find this interesting scenario that there were these two groups that they felt to some degree at odds. It was over the issue of food. The Bible says this, that there were some Hellenists and they complained against the Hebrews because the widows, the Hellenist widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. Here's what's going on. Hellenists were, were still Jews, but they were more inclined and more comfortable in a Greek-speaking culture. In fact, history tells us that most Hellenists would have spoken the Greek language of that day, whereas the Hebrews were those who were probably residents of Palestine for a long time. They probably spoke either Aramaic or Hebrew. Uh, they would have been those who were really accustomed to that land and that situation. The Hellenists would have been those who, because of the dispersion, may have been transplanted there, or maybe they were um, newly there. They were still Jews, but they were much more in line with Greek-speaking culture. And so you had this, watch this, not just a food issue, which I would call a logistical issue. You didn't just have that only. You had a cultural issue. Imagine that. In a church, of, there's different cultures. Imagine that, right? So suddenly we realize the relevancy of this. This speaks to where we are today. That sometimes cultures can find themselves, not intentionally, but sometimes at odds. And here it was at odds because I think if you read the implication, the Hellenists were for some reason thinking, hey, are, are, are we not valuable? Do we not matter? Why are our widows being neglected when the daily distribution of food occurs? What, what's the deal here? Our widows don't matter like their widows? Can you hear that? Of course you can because you've heard it in church. <laughs> oh, it may not be about food to widows, but you've heard it about other issues, haven't you? You can sometimes think, what's, what's beneath that? I think this is interesting. The apostles heard this and they realized there's something more going on here. There wasn't just a necessity to handle a task that involved food. There was a necessity to make sure the church stayed unified. Can't you kind of see this in the text? I think it's very uh, insightful of the apostles here to, to realize, wow, if we don't address this situation, we're going to have factions, unnecessary division. Our unity is going to suffer. And so the, the apostles realize, wow, let's deal with this. Yes, there was a surface issue of the food, but I think the deeper issue was the unity. And so the idea of necessity here is not just a logistical one, but it's also a cultural one. So what did they do? Verse 2 says that they called together the full number of disciples. And then their first response is quite intriguing. They explain what they wouldn't do. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Like if your kid says, hey, I've got a problem here, and your answer is, okay, here's what I'm not going to do. <laughs> you don't expect to hear that. But it's because they had a prioritized mindset about what they knew they couldn't do, 
which led them to realize we, it is necessary to find men who can do it. So follow my thinking here. Verse 2, the, the 12 realize if we, if we try to deal with the disparity going on between these two groups and their widows, if we say we'll take care of the food issue, we'll take care of all the table waiting, so to speak, it's going to take us away from really our primary focus, our real job, which is the word and the prayer. So we're not going to do that. We're not going to forsake a primary duty to handle a logistical one. Now, they weren't minimizing the need for the food to be taken care of. They weren't saying this doesn't matter. They're just saying we're not the ones who should be doing that. So what should we do? Let's find seven men who can handle this. Probably the reason they chose seven is because that seems to be a, a Jewish number often in history that correlates to a group that would handle a task. So it probably comes from their history. And they chose seven men who would, watch this, not only handle the logistics of the food distribution, but would also seek to unify the groups. I say that to you because when you look at the list of the seven men, watch this. They're all Greek names. They're all names of men who probably had the ability to understand Jewish culture, but leaned as well into what these Hellenists were dealing with. Maybe what they were feeling, what they were going through. These are all Greek names. And so I think what happened was that they probably chose, and I think the larger group chose them. They brought the apostles, and the apostles kind of approved or affirmed them, authorized them, but they chose men who could help bridge the gap. I think it's an insightful move again there as well. So that's what's happening here. There's a necessity for unity as well as for this food distribution. But the priority is that don't ask the apostles to forsake what they're doing because that matters as well. Let's find additional men. So what you have here is the 12 joining forces with the seven to have a group of how many? 19. So you find here in this first church at some point when the uh, disciples were increasing, they were growing pretty rapidly. That's what verse 1 says. 19 men who came together to act as their church leaders. Out of necessity, yes, but also out of priority. So you see that throughout the first four verses. Let me say a word about the priority matter, okay? Because we hear the phrase, men of the word and prayer. They want to give up preaching the word. I've heard this said, and I don't agree with it. I've heard this said even back when I was in college and seminary. Um, and I don't agree with it now. I didn't agree with it then. I think it was used as an excuse to try to avoid people, but I'm just going to be, I'm going to kind of land a really honest, transparent plane with you here, okay? Uh, a lot of my friends would say, man, I love being a pastor because I can just get out of my office and I can open the word, I can study and pray. And, and man, then the, the deacons in the church, they do all the other work. And I, I can just tell folks, hey, don't bother me. I've got to prepare to preach. And they would pull this verse out. After all, the word and prayer. Don't bug me. I'm in the ivory tower. I'm, I'm getting the word from the Lord. I'm being a little facetious here, okay? And they'd kind of hunker down. And really what's in their heart is avoiding people. And they're using this text as kind of a pretext for that. That's, this verse does not condone an ivory tower mentality for pastors. Now, that does not minimize the need for preparation, study time, alone time, prayer. I'm not minimizing that, but let me just be clear. When it speaks here of the word and prayer and the ministry of the preaching of the word, he's actually speaking of people ministry. 
It's called discipleship. It's face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, nose-to-nose, kind of in touch with people. That is pastoral ministry. That's what the apostles were doing. Go back to Acts 2, verse 41, verse 47. It says that 3,000 were saved and then baptized, and then later it says God added to the church those who were being saved. The sense is this church was undergoing incredible growth. The apostles were trying to disciple them, baptize them, teach them. That was a lot of hands-on Nose-to-nose, face-to-face work. They weren't ivory tower people. They were street-level, shoe-leather kind of leaders. And they didn't want to forsake that, like teaching new converts the word, discipling them, equipping others to disciple them. They didn't want to forsake that to go and wait on tables and deliver food. It's not saying that food didn't matter, but if they forsook their role, then who would do their role? God had uniquely equipped and called them for this role. So they made a wise choice. Let's find able-bodied men who think in this fashion can solve the problem and just turn it over to them. That's exactly what they did. So you see these first two words, necessity and priority, kind of working in tandem? There was a necessary need, yes, and it had a surface, we'll call it symptom, and there was a deeper issue. But they met that need not by just caving to the squeaky wheel or saying, okay, we'll try to add it to our list. They had the courage to say, hey, we're not going to forsake our main role. We're going to find men who can actually accomplish this. And, and then the church wins on all fronts. So necessity and priority. Now, I want you to notice a few more of the things about this, these words. Especially the idea of the deacons that they said we're going we're gonna to pick these men out who are men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. I love the way that in this text, their first um, qualification was it, hey, deacons, can you handle physical tasks? They didn't ask necessarily about their physical ability. Even though I think the text lays out for us, they chose men who probably had leanings and maybe whose personality was more towards the logistical side of things. They were Greek-speaking Jews who could understand that culture, and they seemed to have the ability to handle uh, physical issues and logistical matters. But they didn't ask first about that. They asked first if they were filled with the spirit of a good reputation, if they had wisdom. So, So watch this. In the matter of necessity and priority, yes, there is a difference of task between elders and deacons. But watch this. There is a similarity of spiritual character. At First Family, it's not like, well, here's the elders, and they're the spiritual men of the church. And then here's your deacons, and they just run the physical things, and who knows what they're like. <laughs> that's, not good. That's, not, that's not what's going on. In fact, in the Bible, what you find is this, that Deacons are called and expected and required to be men of, of deep spiritual character. In fact, not only do you find these words mentioned here about full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, of good reputation. Look over at 1 Timothy 3 for a moment, would you? Just turn right in your Bibles for a few pages. And notice the list of character qualities here in 1 Timothy 3. This is a passage, again, that, that lays out for us the character qualities of a deacon. I'll just read them for you first, beginning in verse 8. Verse, uh, verses 1 through 7 lay out that of an elder, that of a pastor, or what I would say would be in that first situation, much like those apostles. 
Beginning in verse 8, he lays out the qualifications for deacons. Notice what he says. They must be dignified. This is 1 Timothy 3, 8. Dignified, not double-tongued. Don't you find that interesting? In other words, a true deacon is not over here saying one thing to this group of Hellenists and then over here saying something else to the group of Hebrews, trying to play both sides or win favor. He's just speaking honestly, not double-tongued. And that's so important because deacons are to be unifiers. They're to bring people together. They're to bridge gaps, not create them. At first family, if there was an issue between, let's say, a couple of different groups, a deacon goes to deal with that, it would not be right. And we don't have this, we can say this. For a deacon to go and say, yeah, no, I I see what you mean. I'd be mad too. Like, that's not deacon-like. A deacon is to be a unifier, not a splitter. And so we have to watch our words. We have to be careful in this area. So he says here, don't be double-tongued, be dignified, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. You don't work the system to get your way or to get you know, benefits out of a situation. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I love that phrase, don't you? Because it, there it speaks of a deacon's doctrinal depth. Now what's not mentioned is this, church. It doesn't say that that deacon who holds the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience that he has to be able to teach about that. Do you know that? But an elder or a pastor or an overseer in the first seven verses, he does. It's required for an elder to be able to teach. That's not required for a deacon. But here's what both have to share. They still grasp it and hold it. You with me? So he says, deacons, man, they've got to have a, a hold of the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested. and Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless and so there's this um, examination that must go on doesn't tell us exactly how to do that or any length of time but there's this idea that you kind of test them their character matching up to their words verse 11 their wives likewise must be dignified not slanderers again how people use their tongue it's important in, in deaconship for husbands and wives faithful in all things and let the deacons be the husband of one wife managing their children and their households well. Do you see how much similarity there is between an elder and a deacon? They both have to have that, that first form of observation under their uh, proper control, managing their home, being dignified, husband one wife, and obedient children. Verse 13 says, Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. So when you read the, the narrative of Scripture... Acts 6, 1 Timothy 3, you find that spiritually speaking, there's a very similar expectation between elders and deacons. In fact, can I just show you the bridge word of 1 Timothy 3? Look at verse 8. It's the second word in the ESV. I'm not sure what your translation says, but will you read it? Say it out loud with me. The second word, verse 8, 1 Timothy 3, it says what? Likewise. Do you see? That's the bridge word here. What's he saying? Here's what's expected of elders spiritually. And you know what? Deacons are a lot like that. He lays that out. But what's not required is this teaching component. So there's a similarity in spiritual depth and character, but there's a difference in task. And we draw that from Acts 6, where deacons really handle logistical, physical aspects in order to free up the church's, and we'll use this phrase, spiritual leaders. I'm not sure I like that a lot, but I think you get the point. Maybe the discipling leaders, so they can focus on the ministry of the word and prayer, the face-to-face, nose-to-nose things that are happening because the church is growing, it's outreach, people are being saved. 
That's what's happening here. Both are necessary. And both sets, both men are godly. But there's a different task, a different function, a different focus. I think this is all contained within the idea of priority. There's a, there's a reason these seven men joined the 12. Because we didn't want to lose focus on what really mattered. And did the food matter? Yes. Do physical, logistical issues matter? Yes. But they're to support and be a, uh, having those taken care of a relief to then those who are actually doing other, the, the discipling, the, the outreach, kind of the, the great commission work, we'll call it. It's not saying that things don't matter, so hear that well. But what you have here is a combination, a really good team of folks who know their roles and go after them. And in this case, it's, it's the apostles and deacons. So that's a good pattern for what later would become known in the churches of the New Testament as like church's elders and the church's deacons. So we say sometimes at First Family, and this is kind of a common phrase among churches, that your elders handle the spiritual needs of the church. And the deacons would handle the physical needs of the church. Please don't hear that as, here's spiritual men and here's physical men. We're not saying that, all right? Both men must, by God's word, be held to, to, to its standards and be spiritually deep. Copiable lives. Humble husbands serving their wives, loving their families, and willingly sacrificing for the church. That's what it's required. But they have different, I would even say this, sometimes different personalities and, and interests, even temperaments. I tend to think this, and this is going to be an opinion statement here, so you can just take this and throw it away if you don't like it. No problem. I tend to think deacons are gifted by God to handle a lot of logistical, physically oriented things. Um, they're typically very good at things like uh, problem solving with spreadsheets, organizing people, mobilizing uh, units, uh, figuring out solutions. Um, they work great in that. Um, and they kind of get jazzed by that. Does that make sense? Uh, and so I tend to see that kind of how it's exhibited. And that's not always true. But when we talk about a, a men who look to the spiritual needs and some of the physical needs, just here, we're talking about focus and responsibility, not character. So necessity, priority. And what's the last word? Continuity. Look at verse 7. And this is where it all fits together so nicely. Because you could come to the end of verse 6 and you could say, okay, so they knew there was a need... They weren't going to abandon their primary role. They found some men who would do it, and they met the need, so we're good. The church is happy. The widows are full. The menus are set. Tables are weighted on. We're good to go. But that really wasn't the ultimate end game, was it? I mean, this, is where, this really lights my fire. You'll love this. Look at verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. In other words, the preaching continued. The disciples Say the next two words with me. Multiplied greatly. I love the way Luke writes this because, you know, you would say maybe just one of those in normal conversation. It was a great turnout. Or we had really good multiplication, but he uses both. Think about that. It wasn't just multiplication. It was great multiplication. That sounds like something exponential, doesn't it? And then it says, a great many of the priests became, say the word with me, obedient to the faith. I think here's a reference to 
the priest who would serve on two-week rotations in the temple. They were probably in the Hellenistic group. And they watched the church stay unified. They watched um, the men continue to be involved in discipleship, outreach, and the deacons handle logistics. And they watched the church handle this well. And something within that and the word of God being preached, people being saved, they said, you know, we're just, we're going to turn and believe as well. Like, they became obedient. I, I love that. See, the real result, the, the, the thing that God wanted to make sure wasn't derailed and detoured was his commission. Now, church, hear this well. We're just going to be on some thin ice here. You'll survive and I will too. Watch this. The real issue wasn't, okay, are the widows happy? We hope so. We're good. Just like in church, the real issue isn't, did you get your way or I get my way? Did we solve the surface issue? Is so-and-so upset? Are they not upset? That's not really the issue ever. The real issue is, have we solved the problem so that God's mission can continue at First Family Church? Are you listening to me? There's something more important than the food issue. Was that an issue and did it matter? Yes, but was it all important? No, what really mattered was that there was not a hindrance to God's commission to see folks saved and baptized and taught. That we didn't put our interest above God's interest. That we didn't make our concerns more important than his concerns. And I love the way this verse says, man, as the church's leadership rallied, mobilized people, worked together, the great commission continued. In fact, I say that because of one single word in verse 7. Your eyes are on your text, right? Notice an interesting word in verse 7. It leads me to think this is actually the great commission being lived out. Probably 10 years prior to this, at the most, Christ had said to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, he said, I have all authority, and so my last word to you is this. Go make disciples of all nations and teach them, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey all I have commanded. What does this verse say was happening? The word of God's increasing, it's multiplying, and priests are becoming, say it with me, obedient. They're not just hearing. They're actually doing what God says. That's the great commission. When Jesus said, you go and you baptize, you teach to what? Obey. See, the great commission isn't, hey, when, baptize, and teach them what I said. That's not the great commission. The great commission is you go, you win, you baptize, and you teach them to obey everything I've said. And the American church has turned the Great Commission into the Great Suggestion. Hey, here's what Jesus said. Would you give it a thought? Consider it. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is teaching people to actually do what Jesus said. And what you have in verse 7 is the, the apostles remaining on focus to make sure obedience was occurring. I love that, don't you? And that was able to kind of, that was kind of prompted or that was able to continue to happen because seven men said, hey guys, we'll take this task. We'll take the tables. We'll wait on them. We'll handle the food. We'll unify the groups. Keep preaching. Keep praying. Keep working with people. Keep discipling. Keep equipping us for that. We don't want to get derailed or detoured. And God's purpose continued in his church. It's beautiful. 
So as we solve problems here, as we hear problems, because let's admit it, in this first church, a complaint arose. It's been happening ever since, right? <laughs> okay? Complaints arise. Things happen. We want to hear them. We want to find out what's the real issue below that. Is there divisiveness potentially occurring? How can we work towards unity? Watch this. Not just so you're kind of happy and I'm happy we get our way, but so that in the end, God's mission is, is, is front and center at First Family. That's the goal. And elders and deacons must work to that. And specifically today, the delightful duty of deacons is to work to that end. That God's mission stays front and center. God's people stay unified. That's the delightful duty of deacons. And most of the time, they'll do that in physical, logistical ways, what we call the waiting on tables. And before I give you this in a single sentence, let's see if you have any questions. I'm not sure if any came in, Jason. He's telling me no, so that means you guys got it on the first round. Way to go. The plane flew. You got it. We can land this baby, right? Okay, good. Let me see if I can put a handle on these seven verses. You can kind of take them with you, okay? Now, I want to admit to you this. It's going to be a little long at first. Uh, that's not new to you. That's kind of my style. I'll take out part of this in a moment, but I made it long on purpose at first because I want you to see a definition that matters. Are you with me? Just kind of nod like this is with me. You, you're hanging with me? Here's kind of how I would sum up these seven verses about the delightful duty of deacons. I'd say this to you, that out of necessity and priority, God led the church to appoint deacons. And I think it's an important phrase. This is not a man-made idea. It's not some really smart apostle saying, oh, I figured this out. Here's an idea. This is God structuring and leading his church. So God led the church to appoint deacons. And here's the definition of a deacon that I think works there's other good ones, I'm sure. This is one that I, I really like. I think it makes sense because it combines the, the several aspects of the text. Deacons are qualified men like elders who handle different tasks than elders and yet accomplish a common goal with the elders. You follow me? So can we just read the definition together? What is a deacon? Say it with me. Qualified men like elders who handle different tasks than elders yet accomplish a common goal with the elders. Now, there's some things in there that you could be more definitive about, but I think it gives us a, a broad enough understanding to see, oh, spiritual men who work with the elders, and yet they handle different tasks. Okay, so let's go back to our take-home truth now. So God led the church to appoint deacons for the continuity of his mission and the unity of his church. So let's take the definition out. Take a picture of that, write it down, at least you know it. But let's just kind of summarize it now in a little simpler form. What's the delightful duty of deacons? What's kind of their end game, their aim? Well, out of necessity and priority, God led the church to appoint deacons for the continuity of his mission and the unity of his church. So while you're looking at that, letting that kind of weigh in on you, let me say to every deacon here, and you're doing this, so this is a good time to say it. There's no coded message here. There's no hidden agenda. Deacons, this is what you're working for. You're working to be a unifier at First Family. You're working to bring people together so that we can stay on mission. You're working to relieve the elders of logistical tasks so they can continue to disciple and, and equip for, people for that so that God's mission can continue. That's really what deacons do, and they do it willingly and gladly. 
They're experts at physical issues. They can handle it. And at our church, they do those things. Whether it's mobilizing you to remove the snow or handle the landscaping or set up tables or uh, organize an event, you can name it. Any of those physical issues, man, the deacons got it. They do a great job. But it's not just so they can like be your waiter. <laughs> I mean, you don't have like a little bell. Hey, deacon, ding, ding, need something. That's not what table waiting is for, to make sure that you have a comfortable, good church experience. I'd remind you that in the middle of this time when the disciples were increasing, persecution broke out, and the very first deacon was actually martyred. Chapter 8 unveils that the church was persecuted, so they had to disperse. So just because deacons come doesn't mean like, oh, good, man, I've got my own personal servant, ding, 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 you know. That's not the point. They're handling issues that could threaten, detour, or derail the church. That's what they're there for. And so then they handle those, the physical ones, the logistical ones, in tandem, in combination with the elders who are looking for the spiritual needs. And together then, God keeps us focused on what matters most, his mission. Now notice how I said that. Because I'm gonna kind of raise your vision and I wanna deepen your insight. Can we do both of those together? Can we go up to 30,000 feet and can we drill down? Watch this. God is doing this God's structuring his church in this way for this reason. He won't allow his mission to be thwarted. You see, we often say this sometimes. I said it in first service, and I know what I mean by it, but it doesn't come out exactly the, the, the most accurate way. We often talk about the, the mission of the church. And I get that. I know what we mean. But the most textually accurate way to word that, that fits the meta-narrative of the Bible, is that really God didn't give the church a mission. God gave his mission a church. I'd remind you, he called Abraham to be a light to the nations and through which his seed, Christ, would come and there'd be people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue around the throne. That started well before the church came into existence. Are you with me? God's been on mission since day one. Part of that mission is that he instituted and birthed the church to accomplish his mission. Are you following me? So I think sometimes we'd be more accurate to say, wow, the church has a job, yes, and we lean into the Great Commission, but the truth is, the Great Commission had come around like, oh, I gotta give the church something to do. There's always been a God on mission, and he gave the church to make sure it got done, and so when that happened in Acts, and the church grew and was overrun with logistics, what did God do? He organized his leadership to make sure They were structured in the best way to see his mission continue. And when a church grasps that, that we're not here to create a club mindset for our own comfort. We're not here to to make sure we're comfortable. Yeah, there are issues that are surface level that we should deal with, temperature issues. If we can fix those, we'll try. You can name a lot of those, right? But if it doesn't go just like you want, but the church stays on mission and we can stay unified, that's really what matters, church. What matters is God's mission that he's been up to since day one. Redeeming to himself a people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. Deacons, that's your delightful duty. 
to help take care of physical needs so that they're not detracting people, dividing people, and they're helping us, and you're helping us stay unified to that end. By the way, it does start locally. Notice in this text, the massive growth was right there in Jerusalem. Their church was impacting people. The word's going out. They're ministering. They're serving. Yeah, sorry. But then it spreads. And so the pattern, I think, is really set here. Church leadership is designed to help the body impact its local area and think globally about its effect after that. This just shows you how much God loves his church, doesn't it? That, that he would design a structure where the physical needs are met and the spiritual needs. Isn't God just an ingenious creator? Doesn't he care for his church so beautifully? Doesn't he love you remarkably? And doesn't he love this body remarkably? He didn't throw us to our own devices. He didn't say, well, you're saved, you're in the family, good luck, figure it out. You know, go read the latest guru uh, leadership book. Get an MBA. He said, hey guys, tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll give you men, qualified men, who will shepherd you spiritually. And I'll give you qualified men will work with you logistically and physically and together we'll use that as a system by which we continue to march forward and move forward accomplishing the Great Commission. I, I love the way God loves his church, don't you? And we should not be surprised at that. Acts 20 says this, that Jesus Christ purchased the church with his own blood. So guess who the church belongs to? It does not belong to the men who are on this platform with me or to me. I don't own the church I'm not the boss of the church. I might be the boss of the staff, but I'm not the boss of the church. That's a little humor there. Laughter would be a little more. Help me out there a little bit, okay? Especially our staff. Laugh with me, guys. Come on, okay? I don't own the church. The elders don't own the church. The deacons don't own the church. And the truth is, you don't own the church. God owns his church. Jesus bought it when he died. And he will ensure that its leadership structure and its people are designed in a way that his mission is fulfilled. And man, when I, when I read that and I see that, man, my heart, it rests. Because then I don't have to be the genius on the block. I don't have to be the hero or the goat. I've just got to be a faithful under-shepherd with other men who are elders and deacons. And together, let's keep God's mission in our crosshairs, amen? Let's let Christ's last words be our first concern. And I want to say to you who are in our church, whether you're new or been here a long time, your leaders, your elders and deacons are aimed at exactly, precisely that goal. God's mission. And we're going to lead in a way that points you that direction. So can we just have a moment of prayer and asking God to massage our hearts with this truth and to, to bring us to the place where, where we see our church leaders and their actions as important to pointing us to God's actions. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.